Over the years, surveillance techniques have become more sophisticated. Methods of spying and the powerful authorities using these methods to monitor human rights defenders are more and more difficult to detect as digital spyware technology advances. In this episode of Rights on the Line, we'll be speaking with HRDs and digital security experts to take a closer look at some of the ways authorities get too close. Often when you read reports of phone hackings and spying of human rights defenders, often the name Pegasus appears. Pegasus is spyware developed by the Israeli cyber arms firm NSO Group Technologies. The spyware can be installed in iOS and Android phones and is capable of reading text messages, tracking calls, collecting passwords, mobile phone tracking, accessing the target device's microphone and video cameras, and gathering information from apps. NSO Group has stated that with this spyware, they enable authorised governments to combat terror and crime. But despite these claims, the group does not exercise control over the use of Pegasus, which authoritarian regimes can and have used to monitor dissidents. On August 23, 2020, Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that in the past few years, NSO Group sold a spyware for hundreds of millions of dollars to the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Oman and Jordan. Bahraini human rights defender Hussein Radi works for the Bahrain Centre for Human Rights. He first became aware he was surveilled in 2017. In the beginning, I didn't know that someone was tracking me or that someone was trying to get my private information. But over time, there were some indications that someone was monitoring me and it raised some concern. I received many private messages on Twitter and also emails from anonymous accounts. And the last incident that happened to me was proof that I was under surveillance from the government. And this was confirmed to me by frontline defenders when their protection coordinator helped me. The incident was that I got an SMS message from a Bahraini telecommunications company offering me a promotion for internet and calls. And if I wanted to get that promotion, I needed to click on a link. When I clicked the link, it took me to a blank website with no information on it. Immediately, I contacted Frontline Defender's Digital Protection Coordinator for the MENA region, and he said this was a suspicious website, suspicious link, and it's not related to the telecommunications company. And after that, they did an investigation and found that this link is related to a company using spyware to attack human rights defenders. Then Frontline Defenders Digital Protection Coordinator gave me advice and tips to protect my information which will protect me if I get attacked by similar spyware. And he also informed me that FLD is ready to provide any logistic support or technical support anytime because I had become a victim of this spyware. This incident shocked me, actually, in the beginning, because I don't know what exactly the government will do with the information and where they will take this information. And I also don't know what kind of information they took from my phone. But the logistical and technical support from Frontline was really a very important step for me, and it has helped me emotionally also. Definitely this incident had a great impact on me and the team I was working with. But also, sometimes there's the positive impact in that our awareness regarding digital security is increased, and also our knowledge. But with this kind of incident, 
it's usually to use the information against us and blackmail us. And we don't know what kind of blackmail they will use against me, or my team, or my family. I think when you experience that kind of incident, you think always of what you need to do next to stop that kind of attack from happening. Reducing activity, that's one of the things I will do for sure. And there's also a fear, because you don't know what in the future will happen. All your activity will be targeted by the government. Everything in your life will be targeted. And always with me, there is a fear because the future is not really clear. And that will also minimize my work, will reduce my activity. I will self-censor. The Citizen Lab is an interdisciplinary laboratory based at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. The lab is focused on research and development at the intersection of cyberspace, global security and human rights. In 2018, they released a report which identified NSO Group's Pegasus spyware to operations in 45 countries. Bill Marzak, a senior research fellow at the Citizen Lab, co-authored the report. Can you tell us a little bit more about your methodology and findings in this report? The goal of this research was to try and find out the locations of the victims infected with the Pegasus spyware. What countries are they in? What internet service providers, known as ISPs, are they using? This sort of information helps us understand where the spyware is being used and who, uh, in other words, which governments are using the spyware. So how do we answer these questions? Well, remember that the purpose of spyware is to send information back from your phone to someone who is spying on you. The spyware sends that stolen information from your phone over the internet to a web server that is controlled by the spy. So the first step of our research is to identify what servers are the spies using to receive this stolen information from your phone. Now, this is actually a very complicated process because the spyware company doesn't want us to find their servers. So they take a lot of steps to make the servers they use look as, as benign and normal as possible. But even if the spyware company tries really hard, there's often going to be something in common between the servers they use. Why? Well, the whole point of having a company is that the company makes a product and sells the same product to a bunch of different customers. They're not going to make a different product for each customer. So the servers that the company uses are going to be running the same product, the same software, to receive that information from the spyware. So we as researchers just have to find that thing that's in common between these servers, which we call a fingerprint, and then we can scan the whole internet and get the full list of servers that match this fingerprint. But before we do this, we need what we call ground truth. Now usually this means finding a copy of the spyware and seeing what servers it is programmed to communicate with or send data back to. Then we can identify distinctive characteristics of these servers and develop the fingerprint, and then scan the internet for this fingerprint. Anyway, once we have a list of the servers that the spies are using, the next step is to figure out, well, who is sending data back to these servers? In other words, where are the victims located? Now, this is the part of our report where we actually had to develop some new science. And if, if you're at all interested in computers or technology, I'd strongly encourage you to read our report where we discuss this, this technical methodology. What we did here was pretty awesome. To summarize, we basically improved upon an existing technique called DNS cache probing, which allows you to scan ISPs around the world and determine whether anyone on that ISP is communicating with a certain website. Um, in this case, you know, you don't get much information necessarily about who the victim is. So if you find someone on Saudi Telecom infected, well, great, there's 
probably millions of subscribers to Saudi Telecom, and you don't know who it is, or it could be more than one victim. But this information is useful for figuring out which countries uh, each, of, each of NSO Group's customers is spying. And remember, NSO says that all of their customers are governments, so this process basically helps you measure the extent of government surveillance and espionage around the world. So for example, we found an NSO Group customer linked to Saudi Arabia was spying on targets in 12 countries, whereas an NSO Group customer linked to Bahrain was mostly spying on targets inside Bahrain and sometimes in Qatar. Overall, this technique allowed us to show that people in at least 45 countries around the world were being spied on with the Pegasus spyware when we did this report in 2018. Unfortunately, a lot of these countries have very poor track records on human rights, which was something that was quite concerning to us. Given the use of Pegasus by countries with dubious human rights records to target human rights defenders, does this delegitimize and de-justify the technology and its intended use as a tool of criminal investigations? It really depends on what sort of customer it is. Is it a government agency that has good independent oversight, or is the oversight lacking? If it's lacking, then the political goals of the customer show through. For example, we have seen Pegasus customers linked to the UAE and Saudi Arabia very aggressively going after media outlets that they do not control. Whereas with some other customers, like a Pegasus customer linked to Switzerland, we haven't yet found cases of spyware abuse. Did any NSO Group representative respond to the report? Yes, NSO Group frequently does respond to our reports. Now, often, they respond with denials of things that we never actually said. So if you look at the reporting we did around NSO Group's Pegasus spyware in Saudi Arabia, NSO's response was that they denied that Jamal Khashoggi's phone was infected with Pegasus. Well, that's great, but we never said his phone was infected with Pegasus. What we found in our report was that Khashoggi's close associate, Omar Abdulaziz, based in Montreal, had his phone infected with Pegasus in the weeks leading up to Khashoggi's assassination. Sometimes, NSO will respond to our reports with allegations like, we are quite familiar with Citizen Lab's shoddy work, or generic statements like this, oh, not every suspicious text message is NSO Group's Pegasus spyware. Now, when someone responds with these sorts of generic statements without identifying anything specific that they think is wrong in your report, it's an indication that perhaps, well, they can't find anything in your work to discredit or deny. Are these types of spyware typically developed in the West? In many cases, yes. The tools we have seen are from European countries, as well as countries like Israel, that have a significant government surveillance program themselves. We have also started to see another worrying trend, which is that former agents from Western intelligence agencies are going to work for repressive governments. For example, the great reporting by The Intercept and Reuters about Project Raven, where former U.S. National Security Agency and Central Intelligence Agency operatives went to the UAE to help them build a surveillance program. Have you seen greater threats to human rights defenders, civil society this year posed by vulnerable apps intended to offer COVID-19 information, but instead used to surveil? Yes, we're aware of some cases of targeted spyware used against civil society posing as COVID information. I think it's despicable for a government to try and spy on people by exploiting their desire to keep themselves safe and access public health information. But unfortunately, it's fairly standard for this sort of spying. Any issue, any topic, no matter how offensive, will be used to try and spy on a target. There are no red lines here. If something can be imagined by a human, it will be used as a pretext to spy on a target. 
A few years ago in Mexico, we saw the government sending text messages taunting targets like, I'm sleeping with your partner while you're at work, here's the picture. Or, your child is in the hospital. Of course, neither of these things were true, but you can imagine, if you received a link like this, maybe you would click on it. It's a scary thought, but most of all, the important thing is to be vigilant, especially around common ways that phones are hacked, like through text messages. Of course, these sorts of attacks are very highly targeted. They can be expensive for a government to do. Most links are fine, and most people will never get spied on. But it is important to keep a lookout for this sort of stuff, because if you're spied on, yes, maybe there will be some negative effects for you, but the real bad stuff will happen to your friends, your family, your contacts. With any surveillance tool that is sold to governments, there are going to be at least two different types of government customers. The first type of customer is going to have very good oversight of their activities by an independent party. It might be a law enforcement agency that's using the tool in legitimate investigations to go after serious issues like terrorism or child abuse and bring criminals to justice. The second type of customer is probably going to have not very good oversight of their investigations. This customer might be an intelligence agency that's using the spyware for a different purpose. Often the focus on these agencies is not on stopping crime or terrorism, but rather to achieve specific political goals. Maybe to try and gather embarrassing information about political opponents to blackmail or discredit them, or to try and anticipate what the political opposition is going to do next, or maybe to try and identify and arrest a journalist's sources that are critical of you. Overall, the second type of customer is a group with political power. They're interested in keeping that power. They will violate human rights to keep that power and will use tools like NSO Group's Pegasus spyware to avoid being held accountable for violating human rights. The good news is that it's quite easy to tell the difference between the good customers and the bad customers before you sell to them. The bad news is that often, companies in the surveillance industry and the governments that approve their exports do not try and avoid selling to the bad guys. Why? Well, think about it. Nobody ever went broke selling spyware or weapons to a human rights violator like Saudi Arabia's government. If there's no oversight, governments can spend or embezzle large sums of money to purchase these sorts of products. These dodgy deals are the kinds of deals that can build personal fortunes and wealth. The key to all of the work that I do, and most of the work we do at Citizen Lab, is getting what we call ground truth. This means finding people who are being targeted with spyware, or finding people whose phones or online accounts are hacked, or maybe people who are getting suspicious messages. For example, Ahmed Mansour in the UAE, a human rights defender who's now been in prison for more than three years. Well, back in 2016, he got a suspicious link on his phone via SMS and forwarded it to me. I clicked on the link and got the first ever copy of the Pegasus spyware. We analyzed the spyware in collaboration with Lookout, a cybersecurity company, and reported our findings to Apple. This was important because Apple was able to issue a patch that blocked Pegasus on all iPhones. Now, of course, NSO Group eventually found a way around that patch and found new ways to break into phones. But from that first case of Ahmed Mansour, we never lost visibility into Pegasus and were able to link it to other abuses in Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and other countries. All of this incredible follow-up work that we have done and others like Amnesty International have done on Pegasus, none of it would have been possible without that initial first case, the ground truth from Ahmed Mansour, the fact that he noticed these messages, quickly forwarded them, and was willing to talk about his case publicly. It really saved a lot of people from a very bad fate. 
and continues to help keep us safe today. So this is how my work intersects with groups like Frontline Defenders. The whole key is maintaining these connections with activists and dissidents, the people who are on the front lines facing some of the most sophisticated digital threats. Finding these ground truth cases can help keep everyone safe. Tahir Imran is an investigative journalist from Pakistan. He tells us about the landscape for reporters in a country where state surveillance is a given. A journalist understands when it's any journalist working in Pakistan understands that he or his work is surveilled and his work is basically monitored or somebody is out there who's looking at the information that he's passing on, the communication that he's having, somebody who he is meeting or somebody who he's not meeting or somebody he's talking to. These all actions or movements are at some point uh, monitored. It only becomes a problem when you try to cross the line. So for example, if you're talking about normal issues, normal corruption, normal um, subjects that are slightly um, risky in Pakistan, for example, exposing the corruption of the political elite or diplomatic or bureaucratic corruption or sort of like things that happen in the in the country that would be fine unless it goes beyond the realm but if you so for example talk about balochistan for example you talk about pashtun tahafuz movement which is going on right now if you talk about militaries human rights violation or alleged human rights uh, violations in the tribal areas or in balochistan or in other military operations or for example the corruption within military or the sort of heavy handedness of these are topics when you enter them, when you start talking about that, then you get into that sort of like narrower circle where you are target of surveillance, where you basically have to watch every step you take, where you have to watch over your shoulder that if somebody is talking to you, somebody is listening to you or not. So that is very important. So it intersects your work in, a, in, in, in many ways. First of all, you have to be very watchful who you are talking to. Then you are worried that, oh, your work is going to be published or not because a lot of publishers these days are very reluctant to publish things that are beyond certain lines. Then the third thing that people have to understand, uh, such reporters have to understand, okay, if the work is published, then how you are going to uh, face the vilification or the, um, the crucifixion on social media. People are going to lynch you, literally uh, discredit you, bring out anything that you have done in the past to discredit your work on the basis of who you are or what you have said some 10 years ago or whatever. And then on top of that, so for example, there was a journalist uh, from BBC who did a story about military's alleged um, human rights violations in tribal areas, again, Pashtun. So when there was a meeting between the BBC officials and the military, they showed uh, the BBC officials a record of his Twitter account or social media posts where he said something about PTM or he said something about military or he said something about human rights violations. And uh, it was presented in a way that, oh, look, we have a whole record of what he has said and that record shows that he's not a patriotic person or he has this kind of thinking, so that's why his reporting is not right and you are basically biased or he's biased or whatever. So there are implications or things are said like that. I think uh, digital security is not an ingrained concept because a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people are not tech-savvy. They do not understand how social media, how internet works. They also don't understand digital security and they don't understand how digital security works. So, for example, a person like me who understands digital security, who understands a lot of things, for me, it's a huge challenge to find out the right VPN, for example. And then 
to to basically think about okay i have applied vpn how it's affecting my internet speed because internet speed is already uh, uh, slow so we have to understand that it's not a very easy task to basically uh, understand digital security and it's not made easy uh, by a lot of people working in the industry so a lot of organizations that are providing this digital security trainings or digital security uh, support they are very superficial they are like just uh, a, a, a bubble for example so they are s not going around to the grassroots level some of these organizations are doing really great work but most of the organizations are just doing like paperwork so they do a training they will basically go do a presentation uh, check their time sheets and that's it so that's why you don't see a lot of interest from the journalist community to understand and most of the community most of the journalists have basically uh, made peace with this that this they are they are basically facing this and they have to live with that so what and they don't bother about these things so i think it's it's not the case surveillance was always there i mean i remember uh, hearing from my elders that they used to have people standing at their door or in their neighborhoods um, uh, watching their movements. So there is like very famous uh, professor of Yula Shahab. So he uh, narrated once that um, there used to be a guy who used to uh, basically um, come, who used to come outside his house to basically keep an eye on the professor. So professor used to go on his bicycle and the guy had a motorbike. So, I mean, there is a difference of speed. So one day professor uh, got off his bicycle and said, why don't you come and sit behind my bicycle and we both can work, do our work. I'll do my work and you can do your work watching me. And this is the way it is. So <laughs> when as a new journalist, I went to Pakistan, I was living in like a sort of like hub area of Islamabad which is called G9 Marcus. I used to come out of my street and there used to be a taxi driver who had a very old FX, Suzuki FX. It's a very, very old car, small car. And his bonnet used to be always up. So I used to observe the person and see what the person is doing because I used to use taxis. I don't drive, so I used to always wave and he was never available. So one day I went and I said to him, I said, um, my friend, whoever has appointed you to basically come and like do a duty here, can you just share this card with him and like ask him to call me if he has any questions i can answer the questions why are you wasting resources and money on on a person like me i'm no i'm i'm nobody so i mean you should spend this time somewhere else i mean after that day i've never seen that person again so i mean it's it's very shoddy it's very stupid sometimes the way you are surveilled but now the modern technology the emergence of whatsapp and mobile phones and emails and stuff like that has somewhat made their work easy, but it's a lot. So, like, there is a lot of data, and it requires a capacity, and it requires uh, sophisticated systems, which are right now on the shopping list of people who wants to basically see these things. And it's very interesting that they are trying different uh, systems, they are trying different um, tools to basically get their way around and understand how this works. So I think it is very, very important uh, to understand that surveillance has no, never, surveillance was always there. It has changed faces, but it is still there. And a lot of people who basically work in the field face that. Frontline digital security team uh, was really helpful to me to understand how I can encrypt my messaging, how I can use good tools. I mean, the basic decisions like what VPN to use, what email is secure, and what type of encryption should I go for and for example if I have to do an important call to a, somebody who's basically uh, a very important 
person for my story so who what kind of system i can use how i can basically make myself safe and i mean these kind of basic questions so the the frontline team was really helpful to me um pakistani um, authorities political parties most of them have now their groups of social media teams who uh use twitter for example or facebook to flood information to basically flood fake news to peddle misconceptions and stuff like that and it's it's a wide um it's a widely known uh, fact that ispr has a lot of internees and you see a lot of these internees arguing with you on twitter and facebook and trying to basically tell you that for example this political party is right and this politician is wrong and this politician is corrupt and that general is right and so you you can understand where that whole information is coming from and the most interesting thing was that the latest uh, the director general of interservice public relation was very uh, i mean he was very keen to have himself photographed he acted like a celebrity so for example he used to have fan moments and like crowds of people taking photographs and selfies so it there's a lot of data out there so for example most notorious if you pick up any notorious troll master or teams who are basically actively trolling you you will find their photos with general asif afur it's a, it's an open uh, secret you don't have there are no ifs and buts about it so either they have attended an event with him they are connected somewhere and then there are communications there are basically whatsapp messaging whatsapp groups where these people interact and they receive information from people who are sending um directives for example recently there was a, uh, army officer's wife who was seen heavy handedly um dealing a, a police officer abusing and then forcing her way into something so a uh, sms message or whatsapp message was leaked where it was written that you have to give this wording as stickers and do not quote the military just say sources so i mean that kind of things come out so it's not a secret anymore how these using so for example khatme uh, nabuwat is a huge subject that is used to basically sway the debate uh, this was used against the pakistan pmln uh, muslim league noon nawaz sharif's political party now it is used by the pmln supporters against other people i mean i was a victim of their attack few weeks ago it's very interesting i a news anchor aired a program about ahmadiyya community so i caught this uh, news anchor around 2 3 years ago uh, breaking uh, tra- violating traffic rules so i shared his video and at that time it was pmln supporters who were supporting me and saying oh brilliant you did a great job blah 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 and then pti supporters who were saying you are a villain you are a traitor and all sorts of anything they can say this time it was other way around because this anchor is now not very sympathetic to the government so pti supporters were sharing my tweets they were retweeting me praising me and pmln supporters were saying oh you are a traitor you are a infidel you are definitely a qadiani you are definitely this and you are definitely that you are propagating why you are propagating this and senior journalists senior journalists even came who normally senior people who normally are talking in favor of pmln they came and say oh this i have never found this uh, anchor or journalist uh, doing anything wrong and you should consider your opinion blah 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 there was no opinion there was just a video so i'm just saying that that's how it is said so online trolling takes a huge toll so every time my story goes pub- gets published i have this fear in my mind that there is somebody out there lynching the story you're lynching me online and trying to so it's 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 basically that extra burden your story is not 
uh, important it's you that becomes important in some cases and for example um, there was a story about George Soros published by BBC Urdu uh, I was not the one who published it it was, it was not my byline it was not written by me it was not tweeted by me it was not shared by me but even then some people were basically cursing me on online and saying that I am this and I am that and stuff like that so this is the way it basically affects you and I think um, that's how they are using so clerics are the front hand uh, I mean at the front of this uh, whole battle and they are basically doing this whole thing uh, for whatever reasons there are many cases where uh, we have seen uh, conversations being recorded I mean once one of my conversation was recorded and played back to me um, that is something which is unthinkable there were conversations uh, recorded of uh, yeah, I mean like uh, politicians, there were conversations recorded between judges or their families. There are many cases. So, And we are seeing increasing number of people falling victim to uh, sophisticated spyware technologies, which shows that these technologies exist at some level in Pakistan and it is used against uh, people who are... Uh, uh, who are using encrypted for example platforms so people who for example gave interviews for a specific report to an international NGO uh, most of them disappeared after that most of them were picked up and all of them were using encrypted platforms so uh, and in my opinion I have come to distrust WhatsApp I don't think that WhatsApp is encrypt encrypted I don't think that WhatsApp is safe I don't think that WhatsApp is a secure platform where we can basically securely talk and share information because we know that Facebook records and it's just a matter of somebody somewhere in Facebook who can share this data with the, the people who are interested in getting that data so and we know who these people are and we have an idea how these things go around so I'm not accusing anybody but I think there are a lot of dots that are connected and if you connect these dots you find the real story how these sophisticated spyware technologies are helping um, people to censor to curb free speech and to basically harass, threaten and even abuse journalists or human rights activists. In some countries, police surveillance of human rights defenders means HRDs feel there are no local authorities they can turn to for the harassment they face in carrying out their work. Zahida Bihorak is an elementary school teacher and human rights defender from the Una Sana Canton, located at the EU border between Bosnia and Croatia. In 2018, she began to provide medicine, clothes, food and sleeping bags to the neglected refugee camps in and around her hometown. In June of 2020, she gave a speech in front of the Austrian parliament to report human rights abuses against refugees at the border and the backlash that volunteers face from the police and local residents. She has faced a smear campaign and continuous harassment for her work. On the 24th of August 2020, she filed a complaint at her local police station against the individuals who shared threatening Facebook posts online. One user posted a picture of a metal baton with the caption, we should first beat up the helpers. To date, no action on the part of police has been taken. Instead, Zahida's activities continue to be closely scrutinised. When did the pressure from police intensify? Also, Anfang, this so at the beginning of the month of May, the Corona Crisis Management Group of the local government took the decision to forbid volunteers from entering the refugee camps and no activities, not even medical aid, no activities were allowed. But they also did not provide any alternative. 
They, the refugees, do not have any access to housing, no other alternative, no other person or organization was tasked with distributing food. They are not allowed to enter supermarkets, they are not allowed to enter restaurants, they cannot go to the hairdresser. When they take the bus, they have to sit in the back. This is unbelievable. Such a decision is uncommunist against any law and without any legal basis. And the decision has not been made public. We only heard it from the news and the police. We never received anything in writing. Police tried to take my information several times and from my colleagues too. One police officer told me to be careful because my name appears in many police reports. And after that, a policeman, a former student of mine, told me that charges were filed against me anonymously, claiming that I distribute tents, that I aid illegal immigration, that I have money of which one doesn't know the source and that I will be arrested soon. Every time the police came to take my information, I said that it's not lawful, not legal and so on. The surveillance was very strong. Have you ever suspected that your devices have been hacked? Yes, of course. I had the feeling that my phone was being surveilled, but I don't have any proof. And yes, the police stopped me many times when I was driving my car to see my documents, always looking into the car, asking where I was going and what I am doing, where I was coming from. Very often I would be impolite. I wanted to show them that I'm not afraid of them. I have also posted on my Facebook that no one can forbid that one human being gives food to another and that this is racist and inhumane. What indications are there that you may be surveilled by police? Well, during the month of Ramadan, from the beginning of May to the beginning of June, I distributed food, and one day between 7pm and 7.30pm in front of a house where a family from Iraq lives, there are also two mosques. People who are fasting come there and want to pray. And I know everyone can see if a person has not eaten in 24 or 18 hours, and it was quite hot, and so on. And the people, the people living in the house, they told me, Mama, have you seen? The police were there with a camera while you were distributing food. The police took a video. I said, that has nothing to do with me. I am not doing anything wrong. And on the next day, that must have been around the 18th of June, I went to the house around 7.20pm and the people, the refugees, came and I had backpacks with food and medicine for them. But I saw that it was the same people that had already gotten something yesterday and I cannot talk to the same people again, so I said no, I'll leave and come back later. Then I came back around 11pm and all the residents of the house came outside screaming, no mama, please go, 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 police come. One woman with a child was crying and told me that when I left the house earlier, I was maybe 200 metres away, the police came with a blue light, blocking the entryways and the road with police cars and asked about me. Yes, the police are always watching me. They follow me in plain clothes. When I stop the car, they stop too. When I park, they park behind me. And I constantly feel watched. Many people have advised me to stay away for security reasons, but I was also really exhausted. 
I'm seeing a psychologist now and I have a lawyer. And yes, let's see how it continues. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the Rights of the Line podcast for future episodes. Thank you.